Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And I'm joined once again by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Urashami. You know, during our last show on April 15th, we discussed the evidence supporting the conclusion that COVID-19 or the Wuhan or China flu was more likely than not a virus released from the lab in Wuhan. And we discussed the evidence showing that this virus may well have been a part of China's biowarfare. Indeed, reports show that the research at the Wuhan lab was being funded by the Chinese military. Now, whether the virus was released accidentally or as a trial balloon is not crystal clear, but you have one, China shutting down its domestic flights but keeping international flights open, and two, China's cover-up. They denied access to key data and scientists during the, well, the World Health Organization's investigation. Nonetheless, as a result of this discussion of the evidence, Facebook censored our videocast, claiming that it violated its community standards on COVID. So here's where the message we got from Facebook. It says they don't allow false information that has been repeatedly debunked. You know, they don't tell us what apparent false information we discussed during the podcast. This was uh, information that's been widely, re, uh, widely reported as evidence. Um, so obviously we, we objected uh, to that decision, have yet to hear um, back from them, but uh, Facebook uh, certainly has not heard the last from us. And it's interesting, here's their COVID-19 community standards. And the other thing that's interesting, if you on your Facebook post post anything about COVID-19, Facebook goes ahead and puts a link on your Facebook page, our Facebook page, spreading their propaganda about COVID-19. And not just their propaganda, it's the propaganda that's being peddled by the Biden administration. And we have evidence indicating that the Biden administration is working with these social media platforms to silence speech that they, that they dislike, really, that they disagree with, even though the viewpoint might be scientifically based, might be based on the evidence, but uh, if they don't like it, they'll censor you. So here's what their COVID-19 community standards say. As people around the world confront this unprecedented public health emergency, we wanna make sure that our community standards protect people from harmful content and new types of abuse related to COVID-19. We're working to remove content that has the potential to contribute to real world harm including through our policies prohibiting coordination of harm, sale of medical masks and related goods, hate speech, bullying and harassment and, and misinformation that contributes to the risk of imminent violence or physical harm. So apparently our discussion on, on the evidence, again, it was discussion on the evidence of, uh, of the origins of the Wuhan flu of COVID-19 um, violated Facebook's uh, community standards. We call that a viewpoint-based restriction on speech. Interestingly enough, you know, I mentioned that they put a link, so they compel you to engage in their speech on our own Facebook page. They put a link of their, their corona, they call it their COVID-19 information center. So I happened to click on that link and lo and behold, uh, not surprising, um, in this discussion on COVID, there's quite a bit of uh, misinformation, if you would, uh, as to put it kindly. For example, here's their very first post. Vaccines are thoroughly tested for safety before they're approved. So what they leave you with the impression that these COVID-19 vaccines were thoroughly tested for safety before they were approved. Well, the FDA didn't approve these vaccines they were authorized under emergency procedures. They did not go through all the standard trials uh, that are required before a vaccine goes on the market that is required by the FDA. This, all of that was truncated and they had, to, they had to move it through rapidly or they did move it through rapidly. And then their next topic says, bear in mind, they lead off with this uh, notion that you know, vaccines are thoroughly tested for safety before they're approved. Right, so leaving the impression, okay, of course that costs them talking about the COVID vaccine. Then they go on to say COVID-19 vaccine development was accelerated without impacting safety. So again, they leave you with the impression that, well, it did go through all the approval processes, 
it was just accelerated. Well, that's not true. It didn't go through all the approval processes. It was authorized under emergency procedures. And we know some vaccines have already been pulled from the market because they've uh, been considered to be, uh, be harmful. And if you just think for a minute, right? If, this, if it's the development was accelerated, then it necessarily didn't go through all the time trials because that acceleration, right? Time is a good test for things. Because they accelerated things so quickly, we don't know what even, you know, what the effects might be several months down the road, never, never mind a year or two down the road. So again, Facebook is playing a little bit uh, fast and loose uh, with, the, with the facts and their own COVID uh, uh, statement of, of facts, as it were, that they post up on our Facebook page. So again, we disagreed with the uh, decision to censor us. We made that known to Facebook. Um, they've, uh, they basically responded and said, well, we may or may not get back to you because we're short-staffed because of, uh, of COVID-19. Well, as of today, our, our post has still been censored. They shut down our speech, and we're going to do something about it, and just stay tuned. So, David, I want to welcome you into the, uh, into the podcast. Any, uh, any comments uh, about this uh, Facebook, whether it be their censoring of our speech or you know, their take on the, uh, on the vaccines? Yeah, you know, first of all, it's good to see you, Rob, and uh, getting, uh, still getting healthier and stronger after your stint with COVID-19. You know, it's interesting. First of all, I want Facebook to know, since they're apparently watching our podcast at some level, uh, either actually watching it or some bot is going through and pulling out words that they don't like, uh, which is what they claim they do, right? They send out these robots, these digital robots to scan for keywords and, and structures that, that they flagged. And then they tell you that they're going to run it through human review at some level, and you have the chance to appeal um, their decision and get either a human re review or an additional human review. Um, but as you pointed out, um, we have good evidence that Facebook and Twitter have engaged with the administration to effectively act as the enforcement arm of government to censor speech they don't like. So I just want to give Facebook and Twitter fair warning. As Rob said, you have not heard the last of us. And you will hear from us in court shortly, and we will be glad to do drill down podcast on um, those consequences to government censorship, viewpoint censorship uh, in the main, which of course is the most egregious form of First Amendment violation. What's interesting about the Facebook and Twitter standards, and we've been drilling down on those, is not that they're claiming they're determining misinformation or i.e. false information that might lead to public fear and, and panic, et cetera, um, or, or prevent people from acting responsibly because you provided false information and people are so gullible that they believe anything they read or hear on the internet. What they actually say when you read it carefully is that Anything that violates the government's COVID-19 guidance. So it's not a scientific fact that you have to misinform the public about. But if you come out opposed to or even questioning the public policy guidance, the risk-benefit analysis we've been talking about ad infinitum on these podcasts, that is not science. It's public policy. Science only measures certain things. And then the public policy bureaucrats, technocrats, and politicians come along and say, well, since science tells us there's a one out of 10 risk to do nothing, and there's a two out of 10 risk to do something, either we won't do something or we will do something, that's public policy. And that's pretty much a risk analysis that any grown adult could make for themselves, but they've taken it upon themselves to do it. So for example, it's guidance that you wear a mask. Even after you've had 
a vaccine. And we're going to get into some of that later as well. But as Rob pointed out to me early in the week, there's a study published on the government science website called the National Institutes of Health that point out that there's no science to the issue of wearing masks and the prevention of either the receiving the, the infection or infecting someone else. So if all you were to do on Facebook or Twitter is cite to a very study published on the National Institutes of Health website, you would be censored if they knew about it, apparently. Um, so th that shows the, the level of censorship. It's not just true or false facts. It's not just misinformation. It's information that has a different viewpoint about public policy, not fact. That's dangerous, folks. Yeah, you know, it's, as the, you know, we're constitutional lawyers and as the Supreme Court has said time and again, you know, speech on public issues, which this is, rests on the highest rung of the hierarchy of First Amendment values, meaning public issue speech, the very type of speech we engage in during these podcasts, is the most protected speech under the First Amendment. And yet, and you refer to the administration, it's the, the Biden administration, or as he likes to refer to it as the Biden slash Harris administration, that's working with these social media platforms to shut down, you know, discussions like we had about the, uh, about the Wuhan flu, which let's just segue. And you mentioned that study, and I'm going to get to that study a little later in the podcast, because I want to read what the conclusion was, because it's, it's, uh, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear on, in terms of the conclusion of the efficacy of masks, as well as the harm that masks are causing. But let's segue, you, you sent me a story and it's kind of related to this uh, early in the week about uh, Tucker Carlson, right? The uh, Fox News uh, political pundit, smart guy, his response to Chelsea Clinton's of all things, Chelsea Clinton, you know, talk about a name from out of nowhere, calling for Facebook to shut down his show. Can you uh, fill us in on that, David? Right, so you have, Tucker Carlson has raised several questions about the vaccines and the subsequent continuation of the so-called COVID-19 protocols, mask wearing, social distancing, not eating in restaurants. Um, and just as background, keep in mind that um, notwithstanding the claim that the vaccines are all safe and effective, what do we know? Aside from what we know about the emergency use authorization that it was expedited, and therefore not the same as approved. And given what we talked about at last podcast, which was that even drugs who go through the entire panoply of testing and are authorized like Vioxx for chronic pain, years later, five years later are pulled from the market because they're found years later to create such cardiovascular risk, such heart problem, heart attack, et cetera, risks, that it gets pulled from the market, even though Merck, its manufacturer, had made $11 billion. But as a result of the danger that was not discovered by the FDA through the full panoply, they had to pay over $4 billion to settle a class action lawsuit. So the fact that a drug runs through the full authorization or even the emergency use authorization doesn't mean that it is ultimately safe. It means that someone has balanced the risks and the benefits and said it's safe enough, but that's not the same as saying it's safe. Johnson and Johnson's vaccine was pulled and is either going to be back on the market or back in the marketplace with a label saying that it can create the risk of blood clots, which can lead to major problems and even death. And while those numbers might be small today, the problem is, is that we didn't even know that there was a cohort, there was a subset of people with certain conditions, which could lead to blood clotting if they took the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now for those 
that cohort, for that subset of people, the risk is very high. For the entire, you know, 70 million people that get the vaccine, okay, the risk is small. But if you fall within that category and they didn't even know the category existed when they started vaccinating people, it took people to get sick and die before that was halted and then the label required. We also see that we were told time and time again that all the vaccines are incredibly effective. 95, 90%, now we know that they have on a short-term basis, even a higher effective rate. The, the rate of people coming down with COVID-19 after having the vaccines is less than 1%. But that's the short-term. We don't know the long-term. And in fact, the Pfizer CEO just now announced a few days ago that it looks as though to even be immunized from COVID-19 for a year, you're going to have to take a booster at the end of 12 months. And we don't know how it's going to affect after that. We don't know how effective it's going to be against variants because we don't even know all the variants that could crop up. So when you take the vaccines, you have the potential risk of unknown consequences, and you have the question mark of how effective for how long it's going to be. Now, Chucker Carlson raised those issues in one uh, broadcast and apparently also raised the issue vis-a-vis -vis Fauci, where he said, look, if the vaccines are so effective why is it that you're telling us that we still have to wear masks and socially distance once we've had the vaccine? Because he even raised the question, and Fauci has a response, I'll get into that. We actually talked about it earlier in another podcast. But because he simply raised the very sensible, rational, public policy question, it has nothing to do with science. It has to do with balancing risk and benefits Chelsea Clinton, with her newly minted Ivy League PhD and having served on boards and made obscene amounts of money before she had any real experience because her last name is Clinton and she's part of our political royalty in this country, pushed for Facebook to nix Tucker Carlson's access to Facebook which again shows the marriage between government, big tech, and the progressive move to control not just speech, but thought. Because if, they, she, if her goal is to control speech, she should try to get the federal government to take Fox News or Tucker Carlson's show off the air. She knows she can't go that far, but what does she want to do? She wants to control our thought, the people who go and get their news through Facebook. That's her goal. And that, in many respects, is even more dangerous than controlling speech. Yes, as uh, you know, Tucker Carlson said in response to Clinton's call for censorship, he said, we're just asking, quote, super obvious questions. You know, things like, does the vaccine actually work? He was making the, he made a point about how, um, Pfizer apparently said, well, it's not just two doses now, it's a third dose. He's like, well, that'd be nice to know. And just, again, it, it, asking basic, simple questions of public policy, you know, it gets, the, uh, gets you on the, uh, you know, uh, Chelsea Clinton for calling for Facebook to, uh, to shut you down. I mean, it's, they, we've, we're, we're reaching this point of this, you know, cancel culture where, you, again, you can't even ask super obvious questions because if even the question itself uh, hints at an answer that might be contrary to the thought they want you to have, the question's even off, off limits. Never mind what the, what the actual true answer to the question is. Right. And so it's uh, yeah, crazy. What have we learned, right. And what have we learned through the Trump administration that this isn't Chelsea Clinton. When a Clinton or an Obama former aide or you know, colleague comes out with the statement, what you see is others of that same circle come out with exactly the same language. 
cancel Tucker Carlson from Facebook. Then what you see is the media trumping and pushing that narrative. So you get the politicos, then you get the media, and then you get the, you know, the big Hollywood and athletes and so forth coming out with the same messaging. And then you see government going after that same messaging, big government. And so this is orchestrated, not necessarily at the level of a conspiracy, but because they're all in the same camp and they hear the same echoed sounds, they simply repeat those and repeat those and it reticulates, it gets articulated through all the levers of society and power. And that's what, and why it becomes so dangerous. I wanna give Fauci on Tucker Carlson's um, a question about why do we have to continue to wear masks if we've been vaccinated, the benefit of the doubt, but show how ridiculous it is. When he was confronted with that, his in, in testimony in front of Congress at some point, one of the committees or subcommittees, his response was, and it might've been some other forum, but I recall the response clearly was, while it's true that you might be immunized with the vaccine, and so you can't get COVID-19, get sick from it, and from that illness, you can't infect someone else, but it's possible that a COVID-19 virus bug could enter your nostril, not getting you sick because you've been immunized, but it's still in your nostril, and you might then sneeze on someone who hasn't yet gotten a vaccine and get them sick. Now, what do you suppose the odds of that occurring are? Now he like has getting a hole no, in one. <laughs> and he's got no empirical evidence that it's ever happened. Yeah. He's talking theoretics, not science. And theoretically it could happen. And but without knowing what the actual risks are, and as a result, he's mandating from the CDC on down because that's what the governors and the mayors follow when they issue their executive orders. He's mandating that the risk from that unknown risk suggests that we continue to wear a mask, we continue to avoid restaurants, we continue to socially distance, notwithstanding the risk of doing those things of continuing to isolate, of continuing to wear masks, and of the benefits of not wearing masks. He's making a risk-benefit analysis without any empirical evidence. That's what's absurd. Yes, Dr. Fauci, it's possible that a virus bug might enter my nose after I've been vaccinated, and I might sneeze on someone who hasn't been vaccinated, and that person might get sick. That's a possibility, but you have no idea what that possibility is. And as a result, you can't do the risk benefit analysis that good sound public policy requires. Don't tell us to wear a mask. Don't tell us not to go to a restaurant. Don't tell us not to pray in our churches and our synagogues as a result of some risk that's only theoretical in your mind. And while we're on Fauci, this might be a good segue um, he recently was making comments about uh, gun violence, right? Here he is again with uh, this whole blending between uh, science, which it's really not, and public policy. I know you had, uh, you had some thoughts on that, David. Right. Recently, the head of the, I believe it was the CDC, um, a woman came out and said that gun violence is now a public health issue within her purview, within the Center for Disease Control, which of course, we now have a precedent. Keep in mind what this is leading to folks. Mm -hmm. We now know that your First Amendment rights of speech and religious worship and your, your due process rights, the rights to travel, the rights to be free from uh, uh, incarceration through quarantining, all of those things will be thrown out the window by the courts if the CDC claims a public health crisis, COVID-19. Well, now they've identified this public health crisis of gun violence. What do you suppose is coming next? It doesn't take a lot of dot connecting. 
gee, do you think your second amendment is at risk? Because they'll say, we're not doing away with the second amendment. We're just using the old Massachusetts case of Jacobson v. Massachusetts, 1902, and saying that in cases of public health crisis, your constitutional rights somehow disappear, notwithstanding a recent Supreme Court case that seemed to hold otherwise to any rational person. The fact is, is that Fauci is doing what every bureaucrat and technocrat always does. If you give a bureaucrat or a technocrat or government writ large an additional power or authority over your life that the Constitution otherwise precludes or forbids, they're not going to give it back. They're simply going to take that as an incremental status quo and they're going to add to it. And this is just adding the absurd to the dangerous. Gun control over COVID-19. Yeah, it's in just because I think it was 1905 was the Jacobson case, but we got a long, long time ago, well before the, the full development of constitutional standards we have today. But yet, you know, they, they, it was before I was born. That's a long time. Yeah. That. <laughs> so, yeah, this this public health crisis. Right. They realized, my goodness, right. We hear it all the time from the left. Don't let a good crisis go to waste. Well, they now they have this public health crisis model that COVID has given them. And we're going to see it right there. As you mentioned, they, their gun violence is now this public health crisis. And, you know, climate change is going to be a public health crisis. And so they argue that this is our, these, this is, this provides us with our compelling interest to, to quash all of these fundamental constitutional rights that liberals seem to be annoyed by. And, and because it gets in their way of wanting to be tyrants, right? As our founding fathers uh, put in place for that very reason to stop tyranny. And so they have their, they're creating this, this uh, aura of, public health crisis, and they've had this perfect opportunity of COVID-19 as their model for how these tyrants gain and maintain control and power over your everyday lives. So just, just be aware of that. Hey, let me, I want to, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned that Stanford University study. I want to, I want to read this conclusion. It's a little bit long, but it's, it's well worth it. And this was a, this was a study that was brought to my attention. It was, it was, uh, it's published on the National Institutes of Health website, NIH website, which is a government website. It apparently was uh, post was uh, available online in November of 2020. And then it was officially published in whichever publication in January of 2021. So it's a relatively uh, new study. And again, the, the, the uh, author is from uh, Stanford University. And here's the conclusion of this study. And it's, it's a little bit long, but it's, it's worth reading. The existing scientific evidences challenge the safety and efficacy of wearing face masks as preventive intervention for COVID-19. The data suggests that both medical and non-medical face masks are ineffective to block human-to-human -human transmission of viral and infectious diseases such as COVID-19, supporting against the usage of face masks. Wearing face masks have been demonstrated to have substantial adverse physiological and psychological effects. These include hypoxia, hypercapnia, shortness of breath, increased acidity and toxic toxicity, activation of fear and stress response, rise in stress hormones, immunosuppression, fatigue, headaches, decline in cognitive performance, predisposition for viral and infectious illnesses, chronic stress, anxiety, and depression. Long-term consequences of wearing face masks can cause health deterioration, developing and progression of chronic diseases and premature death. Governments, policymakers, and health organizations should utilize proper and scientific evidence-based approaches with respect to wearing face masks when the latter is considered as pre preventive intervention for public health. Oh my goodness. That's that's uh, you know pretty clear and pretty unequivocal in their evaluation of all the all the particular evidence. Meanwhile, I think you know we've got a, a lawsuit here in Michigan challenging the on behalf of a uh, Catholic school the requirement that children K through five have to wear face masks all day long while in school. 
again, think about these long-term effects on these kids. And, you know, they're always touching their faces and the face mask. I mean, if anything, you're going to, you're going to, there's more likelihood that they're going to bring some disease to their nose and their mouth with this face mask on. And I know we, you know, we're representing some parents who, who can't even, can't send their kids to school because the kids can't stand wearing the mask all day. I couldn't. I mean, if I had to, to sit at my desk and do my work and I had to wear a face mask uh, all day long, that would be, that'd be hard. I can't imagine a K through five. But this study from Stanford University published on the National Institute of Health website is, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And I did post it up on Facebook and I dared them to take it down. So we'll see what they, uh, see what they do with that one. Rob, I, I want to just mention two things. And the first is this thing about the mask. You know, aside from that absurdity, and the study is eye-opening, but we saw those same kind of studies before COVID-19. Yes. When they studied masks, they were coming out that they weren't effective. And that's, of course, what Fauci said initially. In the World Health Organization. That, that it's going to cause more problems than any good. But when it became public policy, all of a sudden, the science gets blurred and, and maybe no, but they didn't care about the science. All right. Well, let's uh, going to change. Go ahead. Yeah, I was flying back from Galveston uh, last week. I was in Galveston, Texas, and I was flying back and on the airlines. It's strictly enforced. We've seen families kicked off that have, you know, three-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old children who just won't wear the mask constantly, and they get, they get kicked off the airlines. It makes the, the headlines. But I was flying back, and it's strict. You got to wear your mask. So when do you not have to wear your mask? When you're drinking your coffee or your beverage or you're eating. When are you likely to aspirate and cough a little bit or spit or whatever? When you're eating and drinking. So it's precisely when you're eating and drinking that you don't have to wear a mask. Magically, you're not going to cause any diseases versus when you're not and you're just sitting there quietly, you have to wear a mask. I mean, it just shows the absurdity of it all. One other point. You, you make the note about climate, you know, global warming as one of those potential issues. Think about this, folks. We've now seen that gun violence is considered a public health crisis that the CDC now wants to take ownership of in apparently the same way they took ownership of COVID-19 protocols, which, as we just pointed out, threw out your civil liberties. Under the Obama administration, global warming, in order to try to raise the authoritative and authoritarian approach of government to global warming under the Obama administration, the Pentagon actually identified it as a national security risk. That didn't go very far. And of course, the reason it didn't go very far is because the left, which never apparently saw a national security risk in their life, whether it's from China or the former Soviet Union or jihadists around the globe, that didn't resonate among Obama's constituents or certainly now under the hardcore progressives of the Biden constituency. Rob's point that they're going to pivot from global warming being a national security risk to a public health risk is something to watch. In the same way they're now saying gun violence, if we're right about the way progressives are going to continue to use every leverage of power, and they've now learned under COVID-19 that naming something a public health crisis is incredibly powerful, both in the political domain, in the public media domain, and importantly, in the judicial domain, which is our playground, I'm willing to, to, to bet on a venture that the next thing we're going to see the CDC coming out with is that global warming is an immediate, not just a long-term, but an immediate public health risk, and they must institute certain protocols in the same way we're going to hear that about gun, gun violence. Let's see if my prediction comes to fore. Yeah, you mentioned about the judiciary. It, uh, you know, when you have these public health crises, the weak need judges, and there's unfortunately way too many of them, 
they, uh, they, they become impotent. It's like, oh my goodness, I, I can't interfere with this public health uh, issue. And it's interesting, you know, you, you mentioned the Jacobson case, which Roberts loved, and that's what was being used until the, the makeup of the court changed with uh, Amy Coney Barrett coming on. And, uh, and then now you had a, a stronger majority that was uh, more conservative. And uh, Judge Gorsuch pretty much put to rest this, this idea that somehow this 1905 case is, it should be controlling today. And, and he made the point, and he used the exact words, if we shelter in place when our constitution is under attack, it never goes well. But the problem is because it's you know a public health crisis, too many judges want to shelter in place. And when they shelter in place, things don't go well. And what doesn't go well? Our freedoms become lost. So the, you know, the left seeing how this played out, they're seeing how this public health crisis issue with COVID-19 has made the courts impotent, how the media is obviously in their side, their echo chamber. And so you're going to see this time again. This is going to be there. You know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. This is going to be the continuation of the crises that end up destroying our, our constitutional freedoms. So we got to be, got to be very vigilant and we will, we will on, on these things. Let's, uh, I want to, I want to change gears quite a bit here because this is interesting that came out. Um, discuss the reporting of the, you know, the, we, we heard about, you know, this, this so-called insurrection on January 6th, an insurrection where nobody was armed, apparently. I mean, it's just an absurdity that they'd even consider an insurrection. And what do they do because of that quote unquote crisis, right? They surrounded the Capitol with, with a, uh, with fencing and concertina wire and, and national guard, right? To create this image, like, oh my goodness, we're under siege by these right-wing Trump, uh, Trump supporters. What absolute nonsense. And all we heard, right, if you ask the common man on the street, right, there was this Capitol Police officer, Brian Sicknick, who uh, unfortunately passed away following this incident. And you have to sure if you ask the average man on the street, how did he die? Oh, he was beaten by a fire extinguisher, right? I'm sure every, I mean, people listen, they probably heard that story, right, which was published in the New York Times. Well, lo and behold, fake news. David. Yeah, well, you know, that the whole so-called insurrection, as you point out, um, was manufactured. Was it um, troubling in the main, uh, in the extreme? Uh, quite possibly. Um, but the fact is, and were there people there who were um, literally looking for trouble? Absolutely. We know that. But the one person- Small fraction. Small right, fraction. Right, of the tiny. And and the reality is, is we know because we're getting calls every day for people for looking for legal representation, that there were people there that are now being chased down by the FBI who just were there to demonstrate, not to even go into the Capitol building. Then there were those who were literally allowed into the Capitol building by the police and everybody was being friendly. It was like it was perfectly legal and, and authorized, and they're being chased and charged with felonies. Um, and and just, just entering the rotunda, right? The rotunda used to be, right, the people's house, to get, not going into the chambers of Congress and disrupting what Congress is doing, just the, literally the police opening the doors, people walking in, talking peacefully in the rotunda have been charged with felonies. And we know that. We know that from people we've like, discussed with. Right. They're not just going after the protesters who went in and were looking for trouble, and they have plenty of video with that. They're going after every individual who was even remotely in the area and who they've been able to identify through facial recognition or social media. There was one demonstrator we know that was shot, apparently by Capitol Police, an Army veteran, or uh, um, yes. and uh, she passed away. But we haven't seen the demonstrations about police violence. We don't know the circumstances. None of that's been reported. The media has just shut it down. But when this Capitol Police officer, who apparently was sprayed with either, you know, mace or bear spray or something along those lines, we're not exactly clear what he was sprayed with, um, but he had no adverse reaction, had no allergic reaction. He went back to his office at the police station. And apparently there, um, he collapsed and ultimately passed away. Uh, tragic young police officer with the family. Um, but how was it reported? Well, the news media, the Capitol Police themselves, 
the New York Times, all reported that he died as a result of the violence during the insurrection in the line of duty. Now, that was reported and announced by the Capitol Police and reported by the media in the New York Times without any evidence whatsoever, none. There had been no autopsy. There had been no determination by many, any medical examiner whatsoever or any observation by any witness that there was a connection between his death and the riots. Now, when people die from COVID-19 vaccines, the day after, four days after, the same day, or they get sick, we're being told there's no connection. It's just, if you give enough people shots, you know, some people are gonna die anyway. And that's correct. You can't draw a causal link just because there's a temporal, a time relationship or correlation. The same is certainly true of this police officer. What do the Democrats do? In the articles of impeachment, they identified Trump and his so-called incitement as the cause of the violence that caused this police officer's death. Now, during the actual trial, they didn't talk about it any further. And the reason they didn't, of course, because the media did, but the reason they didn't is because there was zero evidence. The New York Times continued to trumpet its story, didn't make any correction when people were saying, what's the evidence? The media didn't ask that question. And only recently do we find, by the way, it took how many months now? How many months to do an autopsy and then to report? Trust me, they knew that there was no correlation or connection in any way, shape or form to the so-called violence or the bear spray or whatever it was and this officer's um, untimely death. None. But it took them all these months to finally report, and watch how they reported it, to finally report that uh, this officer died because he suffered two strokes, had no allergic reaction. There is no medical connection whatsoever between those days' events, the officer's involvement, and his untimely death from a stroke, in fact, from two strokes. And let me just say this, how did the medical examiner's office release the story? They gave it to Jeff Bezos' yellow journalistic rag, the Washington Post, because that's all the Washington Post has become. They gave it to the Washington Post. And one of the spins that I saw, I didn't access the Washington Post story because I'm not gonna buy a subscription. But one of the, 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 the narratives that I saw from the reporting of the Washington Post story that said, ah, by the way, he didn't die from the rights, was the medical examiner said that um, there was still some relationship between those day's events and his death. Well, how? What's the medical evidence of that? In other words, they don't want to let go of the false, not just fake news, the false news that this officer died from his involvement during the January 6th demonstrations, none whatsoever. Yeah, and I, I think uh, the official report of the medical examiner said he died of natural causes, right? And, and you know, like I said, the, the first story, because I remember hearing it and it was posted in the New York Times, was that he was beaten by a fire extinguisher, right? But even, and, and bear in mind too, with the, the, uh, the prosecutors, the, there were two individuals, I believe, who were involved with spraying with pepper spray or whatever, and, and spraying somebody with pepper spray is an assault. There's, I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, they still could be charged with a crime with the assault, but they're not being charged with any crime related to homicide. Why? Because nothing they did caused or substantially caused or whatever causation necessary criminally resulted in the death of this officer. The officer died from natural causes. Nothing that related to the uh, to the January six uh, incident, but just you know the fake news, just continuous pedal it, pedal it as much as you can, and it's uh, you know it's it's it, what they what they're engaging in is is dangerous too, you know as as we all as we all know, and in the you know the the media has become the echo chamber for the progressive left, and it's you know we gotta you gotta we gotta break through that, and and I'm you know my hope is that there's plenty of American people out there who have common sense, who understand that. 
this is all fake news, you know, that, that uh, that's the proper term uh, for this and that they can find alternate sources to, uh, to get their information. So and, one and last, go ahead. Before you go into the one last, because yes. I want to balance your optimism <laughs> with my less than optimistic view. And that is that it doesn't matter that there's 40%, 50%, even 60% of the people um, uh, are able to pierce the corporate veil, as it were, get through um, the fake news and the false news and the orchestration between the progressive democratic left and the anarchic uh, democratic left, the Antifa types, the AOC squad types, and the media and the government bureaucrats and technocrats, the so-called shadow government and the universities even if they wanted to get the true news and they got it, they watched our podcast, they watch others, they penetrate the studies, they look at this material. My argument is they are so far denuded from the levers of power that there's no access, that they can know all they need to know. There's nothing they can do other than this non-kinetic civil war that we're in today which includes stopping to, to, to buy from Amazon, stopping to use Facebook, stopping from, to use Twitter, go to alternative platforms. That's one element. And speaking the way we speak, truth to powers, the left likes to say, even as they shut us down. Ultimately, people are going to realize, and especially if it's a large enough contingent of people, that even that's not enough because Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and the government and the media have such monopoly power that even if large swaths of the public don't cater to that, the problem is going to be that they're still not going to be able to make sufficient change. And that ultimately is going to lead to such frustration levels that if the numbers are high enough, the non-kinetic civil war will move kinetic. And again, to make matters clear, we oppose that. We pray that it never happens. It should never happen. This country should never be subject to another civil war like we've already suffered. But the left is shutting down every element of political articulation and political power that it leaves the, the conservative, true blue American with nothing left to do. And when I say true blue American, I mean the American who understands that you can differ with others. You can have a different viewpoint, but there has to be a fundamental understanding that our civil liberties are key to a constitutional republic. And we're not some um, mass uh, tyranny where every time the majority musters a vote or a survey or a poll, that that somehow shuts everyone else down and criminalizes their speech or their access to government. Yeah, I, I want to throw one little glimmer of hope and <laughs> back into this. You know, Dan Bongino talks about a parallel economy and we do, I mean, we have to take action. That's a, and small steps can lead to big steps. So I don't want anybody listening here to think that they you know, that's the thing. If you, if everybody takes one of these small steps, shutting off Amazon, you know, looking at, for example, the sponsors for Tucker Carlson show and, and supporting their, their goods, which we do all the time. I mean, those little small steps can make a difference. Look at the, like, for example, the NBA, they were all into this social justice, black lives matter all over the courts, all over uniforms and everything else. Well, what happened? Apparently they got hammered in the pocketbook. So now they said, well, we still promote social justice, but we're going to do it off the courts. When the NFL, when they were doing the kneeling during the national anthem, I know somebody who, who worked for a company who did all the polling data and, and collected up the market research. NFL got hammered on that. And so they backed away from, from that thing. Now they, you know, they continue to go back and, and wanting to add these things in. But those things do make a difference. When you let them know you shut off that TV, you let the NBA, NFL, or whoever it might be know that, these are, that you disagree with this and you're going to stop 
you know, uh, voting as it were with your pocketbook, those things can make a difference. And if every, everybody takes a small step, we'll, we'll make some giant steps. And we, again, I still have a lot of hope that we can continue on and, and uh, get back this, uh, this great country. Quite frankly, I think too, and I've been, I've been watching some of the polling and things that the Democrats, I think they know they're going to get hammered in the, 20, in the uh, 2022 elections. That's why they're rushing as much of all this stuff through as they can try to get through, because I think they know they're going to get hammered. And, I, and I, I'm praying that they are going to get hammered, and, and I think that will end up being the, uh, the outcome. So I'll, I'll leave it with that. I've got one last story that I want to touch upon, and this is uh, dealing with Maxine Waters' big mouth and how she may have prejudiced the, uh, the, the trial of the death of George Floyd. Now we know that the, uh, that the officer was convicted on all accounts. He was convicted very quickly. There was uh, no notes from any of the juror members to the judge to explain the law or to, to review transcripts or things that are pretty common. This thing was, this was as fast a verdict as you could possibly get. Now this, uh, the trial judge made the point and he made it on the record that Maxine Water, Waters has put the case in jeopardy. So here, the defense counsel, um, and, it, and this is in, in broader context, it wasn't just Maxine Waters, but she was one of the, she may have been the, uh, the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. There was a mistrial motion made by the defense counsel, which was based on prejudicial publicity and jury intimidation. Uh, the court denied the motion, but acknowledged that Maxine Waters' comments created a potentially significant issue on appeal if the jury finds the, uh, the defendant guilty, which they did. And this is what the, and this is a direct quote from the record, from the judge. I'll give you that Congress, Congresswoman Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. And the judge went on and noted, quote, that he wished elected officials would stop talking about this case. And one of the comments that Waters had made is she urged demonstrators to, quote, stay in the street, end quote, and become, quote, more confrontational, end quote, if the defendant is found not guilty. Bear in mind, the jurors were not sequestered during this time, meaning they weren't held in isolation. They could go home. They could hear all the news. Usually they're instructed not to listen to the, to the news or, or accounts, but this stuff was all over the place. It's hard to, uh, hard to necessarily avoid it. Um, so it'd be, uh, it would be quite interesting at the end of the day if an appellate court now – you know, we both know, given the nature of this, it's 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 not uh, it's not highly likely. But even the judges, you know, comment that look, there's there may have been there may have been the creation of prejudice to the point that there could be an overturning of the conviction. So if uh, if Maxine Waters' words can be <laughs> can be used against her in this way, unbelievable. If there actually was a if there actually is a a reversal. Now, do I think it's do I think it's likely? Not given the the nature of this case, but is it possible as a as a matter of law? And as a when you look at the overall evidence, is this a legitimate motion for a mistrial, which could result in overturning the conviction and then there being another trial, perhaps at a different venue, out of Hennepin County, there in, in Minnesota? Yeah, I mean there that is a legitimate argument that can be made, whether or not an appellate court would, uh, would have the guts to do that. Um, I think that's, that's a separate question altogether. But from a legal perspective there, and as the judge acknowledged that, uh, that, this, uh, that there, is, there is a possibility that it could be overturned because of things like Maxine Waters' comments. You know, this, that Maxine Waters' comments are interesting at several levels and the, the whole you know, trial is interesting, um, fascinating, uh, tragic at several levels. The, the first thing that can be said and the obvious point is uh, Donald Trump was impeached on the basis the second time of telling people to fight for what's right, to go demonstrate peacefully and legally and Maxine Waters was on the front steps of the courthouse, as it were, the courthouse being Congress, of course, and the Senate when he was being tried, claiming that his speech was impeachable conduct. 
Incitement. Incitement. Incitement speech. She was claiming it was incitement, right. which isn't protected by the First Amendment. Maxine Waters traveling to an area that was under a quarantine because of the violence and the potential for violence, and um, essentially telling people uh, in no uncertain terms to become confrontational. And what does that mean? More confrontation. They're already in the public domain. They've already had riots and demonstrations over George Floyd's death. I mean, how much more confrontational can you get? But her instruction was to become even more confrontational if he is acquitted. Now, Tell me that's not impeachable conduct, but she won't be impeached because again, the progressives and the Democrats own the levers of power. Now, as to the trial and, and, and the consequences, as Rob pointed out, um, the odds of the appellate court um, reversing the conviction on the grounds that the jury might have been or was intimidated that had they acquitted this particular uh, defendant, because remember, there's other police officers going to go on trial for this, for aiding and abetting his conduct, that um, they would be putting at risk themselves, their family, and they'd be putting at risk their city, their society at large because of all this threat and violence. That's the issue. Um, aside from the adverse publicity aspect, and as Rob pointed out to me the other day on the phone, the intimidation, the jury intimidation is really the issue. Now, from my perspective, this was a show trial, meaning that even though, or even if um, Mr. Chauvin had gotten all of his due process, there had been no jury intimidation, no bad publicity, et cetera, um, and that they could have, you know, if they could have found a, a clean venue without all of that, they, they could have gotten there, they would have been there. Even if you kind of just erase all those issues and say, even if he had been uh, received full due process, and you could argue today he got full due process, that's a reasonable argument, that he was still going to be found guilty no matter what. And the reason being, of course, is what we see in the media. What we see is the, the gestalt in our society today. There's no way in the world this man, this white police officer, was going to be found not guilty. Um, now, it's true that a jury and the jury um, could have reasonably concluded he was guilty of all three offenses. I don't deny that. I just say that if you had had a different jury that might have been inclined to have reasonable doubt, not, not acquit him, even a mistrial, just one or more jurors having reasonable doubt so they couldn't have found him guilty, that it wouldn't have happened. And again, because of the gestalt, this, it's, and it doesn't have to be intimidation. It's just that there's no way in the world in our society, a juror who was balancing the risk and benefits in his or her own mind uh, would rise above all that and say, I'm going to hold out. I'm going to be the one juror because that one juror is certainly going to know that after they leave the courthouse, and the other jurors start talking about the case because the first thing we lawyers, trial lawyers do is we go to the jury and try to find out what we did right or what we did wrong, who we convinced, who we didn't. And we compare that with our own analysis of the jury, that he or she would know as the holdout juror that it's going to become public. And think about what that juror would then be <laughs> accosted with. So there's just no way in the world. So you have this aspect that it was a show trial. Um, even if he had been given his full due process rights, it was a fait accompli. So on appeal, as a general rule, we know that criminal trials are not reversed. The vast majority of criminal convictions are not reversed. Um, and the reason being is that on appeal, you can have reversible, you can have error, but it's not necessarily reversible error. A judge can make a mistake, but then what the appellate court asks itself theoretically in a kind of strange vacuum that I have never figured out, okay, the trial judge made an error by admitting that evidence or by not declaring a mistrial or by doing this or by doing that, but would it have made a difference? And then they somehow conclude yes or no, but usually it's no, usually it's no.
Yeah, and, and they waited towards it. And, 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 you know, in reality, too, when you look at that video and the, the prosecution by all accounts, and I didn't fall every day, I was reading, you know, summations of it from people that I, that I respect, um, thought the prosecution did, did what they had to do. They presented, they, had, they presented the evidence they had to, the witnesses, you had the video, they had the experts. So when a appellate court looks at it, it's like, you know, they, one of the things is they don't, they typically don't want to interfere with who is the ultimate arbiter of this, and that's the jury. So it has to be something very, very egregious for them to want to step in and overturn a jury verdict, particularly when you look at the evidence, you say, yeah, this is a reasonable verdict in light of this evidence. But again, you know, even the trial judge acknowledged that uh, Maxine Waters' comments created a legitimate appellate issue. And so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see what the, uh, what the outcome of that will be. You know, and as a parenthetical, uh, we had a, a listener of ours who's a, a fan of the podcast um, uh, ask us to focus on some of the legal nuances. So in, in short and in brief, and it might be something we could talk about in more detail if Rob and I had the opportunity to really review the transcript and so forth of the case, there were really three issues. And keep in mind, there were different levels of murder, manslaughter that were being charged that require slightly different elements, especially on the intent side. But there were really just three issues. And the first issue was, did the police officer use reasonable force or unreasonable force throughout the process. Number two, for some of the charges, did he intend to kill the guy, Mr. Floyd? Or did he recklessly disregard the risk that he was going, his behavior was going to leave to um, the man's death? Or three, was he negligent? So there's an intent level, there's different levels, but there still has to be some level of intent there. And third, even if he used unreasonable force and he intended or recklessly disregarded or negligently caused or in, um, was willing to cause the death, did he in fact cause the death? And there, we all know that there were probably a lot of causes because Mr. Floyd um, had a bad heart, uh, years of drug abuse, he was on drugs that can cause the same kind of death that he suffered? Um, or was it the asphyxiation, the knee, the positioning, et cetera, by the police officer? And the jury had to conclude that it was a, the, that the officer's conduct, which was unreasonable and intentional at some level or reckless or negligent, that that was the substantial cause. Now, I personally, having watched the video and, and read summations and parts of the trial uh, transcript um, that was published, that it's more than likely that the officer's behavior was unreasonable in the course of the entire um, nine minutes and some odd seconds. Um, and um, I think it's very reasonable for a jury to have found that. I think it's very reasonable for a jury to have concluded that there was either intent as a result of that behavior or reckless disregard or even negligence. Then the question for me really came down to the substantial cause. Um, I don't believe science or medical examiner under the circumstances that we have um, could have opined um, reasonably, beyond a reasonable doubt that the officer's conduct was a substantial cause, but the prosecutor prosecution did get the medical examiner and I believe one other expert to so opine. So was it reasonable for the jury to reject the defense experts and to go with the prosecution experts? Yes, as a jury. And even if a medical expert had not opined that it was the substantial cause, even if all the medical experts had said, we can't say as a medical beyond a reasonable doubt certainty that it was a substantial cause, the jury could still conclude based upon its own common sense, and that's what they apply, that, gee, even with all those other things, um, you know, Mr. Floyd was perfectly healthy before he was thrown on the ground with the knee on it. Not perfectly healthy, he was breathing perfectly well. And it was only when that happened. So they could have concluded that reasonably. Um, so we're not contesting the verdict here, but what we're saying is that even on appeal, 
for an appellate court to rise above all the noise, the gestalt, as I've referred to it, of our society in this day and age, um, even if that intimidation factor uh, would, in a normal case, be enough to reverse, I don't believe there's a chance in a thousand than an appellate court would in this case. All right. So, well, that's, this will uh, wrap up the, uh, the topics we were going to cover today. Um, we look forward to our next discussion and I want to thank all of you for, uh, for joining us. And, uh, and David mentioned, I want to thank those who have given us positive feedback about these, pod, uh, these podcasts, which we, we've been receiving them. Uh, a common comment, again, as David mentioned, is to request that we focus perhaps a bit more on our specific area of expertise, that being constitutional law, in our cases. And uh, we please know that we do plan on, on doing that, doing a deep dive on many of our important cases, those from the past and the ones that, we, uh, that we've kind of hinted at that we're going to be uh, bringing, bringing up. So, you know, stay tuned and, and keep watching or, you know, or listening, as it were. Um, and you can find our video casts on, on our Rumble and YouTube channels. And our podcasts, presently you can find them on Spotify and Stitcher. And again, if you like the, uh, the content, please follow us. And we ask that you please spread the word. Uh, we're trying to grow our audience. Um, and again, we thank you all for listening to us. And as always, may God bless you and may he continue to bless America. Amen.